Hello and welcome to episode two of the Wildlife Garden podcast. This week I've been banished by Ben to come out to our bird feeding station in our little urban garden um, to collect up our bird feeders to bring them in for a thorough good scrub down because this weekend we will be sitting down looking at the birds that come to use our bird feeders but before I do that they need a good clean because those birds are filthy Okay, so I've got my bird feeders and ours can be fully taken apart just with an Allen key. Uh, I should say that I'm wearing marigold to do this because I don't want to to risk any more uh, illness. I think we've got enough of that this year Um, and birds can carry things that humans can also catch. So I've got my washing up bowl. A little bit of disinfectant and I'm just going to fill the washing up bowl with some warm water. Right, so that's enough water with a, a little splash of bleach in it. I'm going to take my washing up bowl out of my kitchen sink again to just avoid any transmission of birdie diseases onto our washing up sponges and things. And we've got two types of feeder here. We've got one which is sort of an open cage, which is um, for fat balls, and another one which is a closed plastic tube uh, with some feeding perches and holes for seed. And that one, importantly, can be taken apart. Just got an Allen key here. So you take it apart, put all the pieces into the washing up bowl, and basically just give them a good old scrub. Now, for some of these feeders, it is important to get into all the nooks and crannies because quite often seed can collect in those nooks and crannies. And then if they get wet or if a diseased bird comes to it, then it can harbour lots of horrible things for the next bird to come and catch. So I'm using a toothbrush, an old toothbrush, obviously, and an old washing up sponge and we absolutely do not get these mixed up with our actual washing up sponges. Scrubby dubby 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 dub. Okay so that's scrubbed those nice and clean. There's no seed, there's no dust left behind because I've gotten there with my toothbrush and now I'm just giving everything a really good rinse off this time to get rid of any bleach residue because despite what the uh, ex-president of the United States has said about bleach it really isn't uh, for ingesting and particularly not if you're a tiny feathered bird so That is now rinsed and now we just need to wait for that to dry. Right, those are completely dry now and so it's just a case of topping them, well I've put them back together, but topping them up with lots of seed Um, and at the moment our bird population in the garden is not getting through a whole 
feeder worth of seed in a few days. So I'm actually just going to fill it halfway because I don't want lots of seed sitting there for a really long time, going mouldy. And also the fat balls, a particular favourite at this time of year, particularly when it's really cold outside. Just gives them a bit of a boost, help them through the winter. They do get through these, so I will put four, I think, into there. Right, so yes, I'll hang these back up and then we can crack on with the news for this podcast. So I found Ben. I've finished all my scrubbing. Ben, thank you very much. Yeah, you've done a grassy job. Uh, And yeah, we're going to kick off with this week's podcast. Yeah, so hello everybody. And we just want to say, as we uh, get started on our second episode, how amazing the response has been so far. We've had in, well, it's about a week and a half since we released the first one. And we're at about 125 downloads and... Just, and it's and it's not all just our family, I don't yeah. think. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> but yeah, just thanks very much if you've been listening. And I really hope it's been useful to you. We've had loads of really nice feedback as well. So we're going to try and um, incorporate some of people's ideas into what we're doing as well. My favourite um, feedback was actually from a friend who sent me the reason why Wales is used as a unit of measurement. But I won't oh, yeah. go into that now. But thank you very much, Priya, teaser. for that. Teaser. <laughs> Yeah, so hopefully um, this episode will do just as well. And if you've been listening on our website, we just wanted to say we're actually now available on Google Podcasts, on Amazon Music and on iTunes as well. Um, we're not on Spotify yet because we have to pay for a, um, an upgrade to our podcast host for that, um, which we will do if we get past episode four, which is our limit. If our free limit. If a few of you at least are still listening by episode four, then <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll 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 pay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get on Spotify and sort ourselves out. I think the final thing we wanted to say was oh, it was about um, book club, wasn't it? We said last week that we were going to be doing a fortnightly book club, and what we've actually found is that um, we've got a lot of other things to talk about. So we are still planning on reading the book, which was uh, the British Trust for Ornithology's book on nest boxes. Yeah, that's right. Um, but Your rather than doing it, guide. the complete guide. But rather than doing it fortnightly, we will be doing it monthly. So we're going to skip a week this week, and then yeah. we'll talk about it in two weeks' time. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook. We are at Facebook forward slash the Wildlife Garden Podcast, and on Twitter we are at the Wild GDN. And if you've got any questions, you can ask them there. If you're not on Facebook or Twitter, you can always email us as well. And we've got an email address, which is thewildlifegarden at hotmail and I think if we get um, enough questions, then we'll do a specific Q&A episode. Yep, so get in touch. So this week we are doing the news again. And we also, as Ben said, we've got the main topic, which is feeding your garden birds. And also is the big garden bird watch this weekend. And then this week's um, native plant of the week is the hazel. So I'll be going into lots of detail about that wonderful tree a little bit later. But first of all, to start with this week's news. Uh, So I don't know if any of you have seen, but it it hit main headlines. 
the UK has actually brought in new regulations to prevent the burning of heather and other vegetation to help protect England's peatlands. So this is a really good thing, and I'll go into that in a second. But in terms of peatlands, the uh, the UK has 13% of the world's blanket bog, which is just one type of peatland. We're a boggy country. Pretty boggy. And uh, peatlands actually make up just 10% of UK land, but they store a lot of carbon. And it's actually more than UK forests and other types of soil. So I think we all agree that sinking carbon is what what we need to be doing and not releasing it. Yeah, it's one of those things where people always go on about peat-free compost and stuff like that. But this is the reason why. Peat bogs are really important for wildlife, but they're also, like Ellie says, a humongous carbon store. Yep, and they can't perform the vital functions that they do. So, the, as you say, climate change, um, ha- the habitats it provides, the wildlife it sustains, and also the water filtration and flood risk reduction as well, because it stores a lot of water. So really important habitats, which... Currently, one of the methods of managing this habitat is to burn it. Um, yeah, management. Are, this is management, yes. And Supposed. This is mostly in grouse shooting country. This is this is where this management it prevails. But one thing for sure is that burning it releases some of the stored carbon, which, as I say, I think everyone would agree is probably not a good idea. So the, the legislation is saying that we can no longer burn peat that is more than 40 centimetres deep and also in a triple SI, which is a site of special scientific interest. So it's a really specific situation, which is why people like Friends of the Earth and the Wildlife Trust are still, while celebrating, saying that it's just too little too late. So why is this relevant to gardeners? We still, in horticulture and as home gardeners, use a hell of a lot of peat. And, and quite often when you're buying a bag of multipurpose compost, it doesn't even say that it contains peat in the main text on the front of the bag. You have to go to the back of the bag where it will say sometimes reduced peat. or so I think some bags yeah. are still 70% peat. Yeah, amazingly. some reduced peat bags are 70% peat. Yes. I mean, they can, just, they can use the term reduced if they've taken 1% off it, I think. So it's just it's meaningless, really. And the UK has actually tried to, or has brought in, I think it was 2011, legislation to try and slow down this peat use. No, it was voluntary. In, oh, sorry, it was voluntary, um, a voluntary limit on how much peat is used. So that happened in 2011, but by 2012, that reduction slowed right down. And actually, since then, we've upped our peat use in horticulture which is just completely bonkers in my mind yeah there's no reason why why we should still be using peat so how we can help well it's quite simple just stop buying peaty compost that's one brilliant way and like I say we do it already most garden centers do stock a peat-free compost if they don't why not ask them because Essentially, if more people are demanding this product, then that product will be more available. And hopefully the price might even come down if enough people want it. Even Monty Don says don't buy peat-free. I mean, that's pretty mainstream. What Don says goes. What Don says goes, exactly. Um, So yeah, do that yourself. Talk to... Not everyone knows about this as well, indeed. So please do talk to your friends, family, um, community gardening groups, anyone you can... You can also club together and buy um, peat-free compost if that helps to drive the price down a little bit. But I say I won't go into loads more detail about that. Just why not use 2021 as being your peat-free year? Um, So yeah, that's my news. What's your news, Ben? I'm talking about bumblebees. Oh, lovely. Yep. So again, it's another story that comes from the countryside, but this one 
again, well, it sort of links right into gardens. So there's been some new research published in the Journal of Applied Ecology, which is one of the um, British Ecological Society's journals. And it's looking at the success of bumblebee colonies on farms throughout the year relative to plant resources. So the thing is, bumblebees um, will nest underground over the winter when there's no flowers about, basically. When it's too cold to emerge. It's cold, there's no pollen and there's no nectar. But then the queen comes out in the spring and she feeds up. Then she starts laying eggs and the eggs turn into workers. And these workers are around earlier in the summer. But then she doesn't lay males and new queens until late in the year. So what these scientists were looking at is later in the year, sort of end of summer, that's, you know, the end of August, September time in a normal year. um, Is there enough pollen and nectar to support the breeding phase of these bumblebee colonies. So they looked at um, a load of different farm plots, and what they found was that this really had a big effect. So the availability of nectar in September was a really strong predictor of the density of bumblebee colonies. In this case, they were looking at the buff-tailed bumblebee, but at the colony density in the following year. So that's basically saying that during the breeding phase, when the males and females are all out together, if there's plenty of nectar, then they're going to do really well. The breeding is going to go well and they will all go off to nest and there's going to be a good colony density next year because the females and the males were both healthy at the time of breeding. But the interesting thing for gardens was that they also looked at whether the proportion of garden cover in their sampling area was linked to how well these bumblebee colonies were doing. And they actually found that the proportion of garden cover in each sample also significantly had a positive effect on colonies of bumblebees. Which makes a lot of sense because a lot of us as gardeners really strive to increase the season of flowering in our gardens so that we can enjoy it ourselves. Yeah, we want flowers all year round and that's what the bumblebees want as well. And you've got to imagine in the countryside, although at certain times of year it might look absolutely covered in flowers, you know, if you're looking at fields of oilseed rape or something like that, all the flowers come at the same time. And what bumblebees need is flowers over a really long period. And uh, if you're on a farm and all the flowering was done earlier in the year, then they're really going to struggle. And this research is backed up by lots of other studies as well that looked at the same thing and found that um, the amount of gardens in the countryside is really positively correlated to the amount of bumblebee nests. So it's absolutely vital that we all plant as many late flowering things as we can, or at least try and make sure there's something in your garden flowering at all times of year. I'm enjoying the fact that last week and this week, one of our main uh, pieces of advice has just been to plant more just flowers. Plant more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one thing when we're designing for people, one thing we often ask people to do is to keep a note of what's flowering in their garden throughout the year, because it's it could be that there's a, a gap at the beginning of May or there's a gap at, in September. And so it's really good to just keep looking at your garden, write down when there are gaps and then go and buy things that are going to fill that gap. Yeah, do your research first. Find out when things flower. Yeah, exactly. And try and, and match them up. So if you want to plant um, something at home for late on in the year, then you've got your choice of colours and forms. You can plant herbaceous perennials like agastache and asters, um, sedum as well, which has been yeah. renamed Hylotelephium if you're looking for them online. And that has a really long flowering time as well, throughout the autumn 
Yeah, it looks, these... it looks fantastic. They, they all look fantastic. They, there's no reason why people should. No, I mean, we've had great success with salvias in our garden, particularly the sort of shrubby ones like hot lips. They just never stop flowering, do they? No, they don't. They're, they're smothered in bees from May through to October. If you like hot colours, then Rubecchia and Helenium um, are also great. A lot of the sort of prairie type plants from North America are Echinacea. fantastic. Echinacea, wonderful, covered yeah. bees. Then also a lot of the wildflowers flower fairly late. Um, purple loosestrife can still be going towards the end of August and into September. But things like betony and particularly um, wild thyme and marjoram. And in some of our gardens, marjoram just basically just doesn't stop flowering until Christmas. Absolutely. And it's completely smothered in bumblebees for the whole of that period as well. They love it. Right, so that wraps up the news for this week. And now we're going to move on to our main uh, topic for this podcast. And inspired by the Big Garden Bird Watch, we are today talking about feeding your garden birds, which for me is just one of the joys of having a, an outside space. They're extremely mobile things. So if you do put a feeder out, even if you haven't seen birds beforehand, they do eventually find it. And I don't know, I think Ben agrees that it's a bit of a gateway drug into being interested in wildlife. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think most people can get involved with liking birds. But I think if you actually start to look into the details of, you know, what they eat and things, and it can really... Yeah, it can really be a catalyst for being interested in all the rest of the probably less cute wildlife that exists in the garden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I thought for anybody who um, is just starting feeding birds, I, I'd basically put together a quick guide of um, what to feed them and the right way of doing it. But in the process of looking up information on this, I actually found out that feeding birds, is a, there's a bit more to know than I thought. There's some interesting science on bird feeding that I'm going to share with you today. But just to start off, to give you a bit of background, people in the UK feed garden birds more than just about any other country in the world. So we actually put out enough food to feed up to about 195 million birds every that, year. That's a hell of a lot of birds that are being sustained and, and helped by us putting our feeders out every day. Yeah, it's an enormous amount of calories. I think on average it's about £10 per month that gardeners spend on bird food but you see some people spend an absolute fortune yeah it depends on whether you've got a colony of uh, starlings i think yeah oh <laughs> yeah my dad's starlings. but of course not all of that um food put out feeds the birds because you know 195 million birds is more birds than they're ever going to come to the bird feeders so actually a lot of it is just taken by squirrels and uh just dropped on the ground and we often see birds particularly the sparrows at home they just pick up nuts Sorry, um, they pick up seeds and then just chuck them on the floor, don't they? <laughs> they are incredibly messy. We actually played around with the type of food we put up for a while because we just figured that they didn't like what we were giving them. But they actually, um, you can watch them, they roll around the seed in their beaks and they're, what they're doing is just assessing whether that seed is, is good enough for them to waste their energy in eating it. But it's all then made use of by other birds in the garden. So not all birds visit the feeders some feed on the ground like dunnocks um, robins and blackbirds as well anything that's chucked on the ground is usually picked up by something else yep let's just start if you know if you ha aren't feeding the birds at the moment with what you should feed if you're just going to put up one bird feeder the best thing to do is just go and buy a general feed mix so that's going to be a mixture of all sorts of different types of seeds it'll have um, sunflowers wheat maybe a bit of maize millet all sorts of different things in there and that's going to be good for most species most of the time. 
We also at home use a specific mix for ground feeding birds and it's adapted to be good for blackbirds. So it's got some raisins in it. Oh my goodness, they go mad for the raisins. I've never, I did not know how many raisins a blackbird could fit in its beak till last spring when they were feeding yeah, they there. they just shove them in, don't they? I think I counted eight because it was quite tame so I could sit and watch it, it quite close up. And yeah, you'd be surprised. Yeah, uh, you can just use... Um, raisins from the kitchen um if you're going to do that it's good to soak them for 15 or 20 minutes before you put them out which helps soften them and makes them easier to, to uh to digest but yeah so this special mix that we've got um it's got raisins it's got suet pellets mixed with berries because obviously blackbirds would normally go around and eat a lot of the berries as well if you're going to put up more than one feeder you can start to expand the range of foods that you're putting in them and therefore encourage different types of birds in So you can put up peanuts and peanuts are often taken by woodpeckers, but lots of species will take them. Um, One thing to know with peanuts is you need to use them fresh because they can harbour a toxin called aflatoxin if they're not stored well. So only buy as much as you're going to use, you know, within the next couple of weeks or month or so. I think we've got some we probably need to throw away. It's been sitting around for quite a while yeah we we should probably be doing things a little bit better at home actually and we've learned this from doing the research um so whatever food you're buying just try and buy only as much as you're actually going to use don't buy a 25 kilo sack of bird food if you're never going to use it in a year which is the same principle for our own food you just don't want lots of rotten food sitting around in your kitchen yeah exactly and when you're storing it just try and make sure you're storing it dry buy um bird food peanuts don't put out uh salted peanuts from the supermarket and that'll be the same for sunflower seeds and whatever whatever you're putting out buy them from a company selling specifically for birds yep if you're going to encourage small birds in like goldfinches then they go nuts for a seed called niger and this is because the seed is just really really tiny and you often see goldfinches feeding on things like um teasel seed heads and the seeds inside those, their natural food, is really tiny. So that's what they go for in feeders as well. And because the seed is so small, sometimes you need to buy a special feeder for them. You can put out um, food scraps. So you can put out cooked pastry, rice, um, breadcrumbs. You can put out fruit, like apples and pears. And if you're storing fruit you know, from your own trees, then you can put them out later in the year once the windfalls are all gone. And... You can put out black sunflower seeds, which is just the seed in the husk. And the black sunflower seeds have an easier to um, open husk than the black and white striped ones that you get in the supermarkets. The downside with that is that, of course, the birds take all the husks off and then they spit them down onto the floor. And that doesn't tend to get eaten because it's not nutritionally valuable to anything. So you do end up with a bit of a a sweeping up job after them. But yeah, it depends where your feeders are. You know, if it's um, if they're in a border and it's not going to cause any problems, then they'll just degrade into the soil. But obviously, if it's on a patio or something, then instead you could use sunflower hearts. So that's just the seed from the center. Um, and again, coming back to um, goldfinches, they also go, you know, absolutely nuts for sunflower hearts. So at home, what we have is one um, feeder with peanuts, one with um, a mixture of seeds. We have one with fat balls, which I'm going to come on to in a minute, but then we have the other mixture of seeds that we scatter around on the floor, which has all the... Just make one point. We don't actually put it on the floor because where we live, I think there are actually more cats than humans and we're aware of this. We don't have a cat ourselves, but just to it, just to make the birds a bit safer, we've actually built a purpose-built table um, 
on our bird feeder, yeah, sort so of raised a... above the ground, and that's yeah. where we put the food out for them. It was also designed to catch all the rubbish that they drop yeah, exactly. when the sparrows are feeding from the hanging feeders. But yeah, it's also quite a good table for things like the blackbirds, and the robin quite often sits there taking food from it as well. Yeah, so when we say, like Ellie said, when we say, um, you know, ground feeders, they, they will feed from a table, a raised table. As well. Yeah, it's just, it just they, they just don't hang from a feeder. No. That's, that's what it means. When Although you... they say robins don't hang from feeders, but our robins learnt to. Yeah, it has. It. There's a little bit of adaptation there. Yeah. Needs must. Um, just coming back to cats, that's a really good point that Ellie's raised. Wherever you're putting your bird feeders, don't put it right against a shrub or somewhere where a cat or a predator can hide. The birds will obviously go and they'll fly into the shrubs for protection, but then they want to be able to see that it's clear around where they're feeding. So our um, feeder at home, again, it's a raised table, but it's it's set back from walls and from um, the shrubs at the back where a cat could jump out from. If you are putting a feeder right on the ground, which you can for the, bird, the um, ground feeding birds, um, you know, just a, a slightly raised platform, then again, put it in the middle of your lawn, somewhere where you know they're going to have a chance to see them and just to fly off the final things in terms of food are fat balls which i'm going to come on to in a moment but also mealworms so mealworms are the larval stage of a beetle um, and they are really great at certain times of year for birds so they're really high in protein and amino acids and different things like that Um, you can buy them fresh or dried if you buy them dried you can put them out straight like that You can also soak them in water for 15 to 20 minutes before you put them out, which makes them easier to digest. But you can also buy them fresh. So these are live mealworm larvae. Which makes me feel a tiny bit squirmish. I think the dried ones quite often look like they're alive. If you yeah, if you shake the bag, I have to. I stand there for ages watching it, convinced that there's something <laughs> still moving. They're not. I don't think. <laughs> but yeah, so these are they're quite expensive. Um, you you can buy basically you buy them. And they send them through the post. Um, and when you get them, they're in a pot. Um, they're completely sealed. Um, and they can survive for about three weeks in that pot because there's food for them in there. And then you just put them out a bit at a time for the birds. But they are they are expensive to do that. You can, if you're really adventurous, grow your own at home. So you basically keep... If anybody's got like a wormery or something like that, then it's a similar process. You know, you're just keeping a constant population going. I don't um, think we need more uh, invertebrate action anywhere near the inside of our house. <laughs> We're pretty good at bringing the outside in already, aren't we? Yeah, our inside <laughs> ecosystem is already vibrant enough as it is. Highly biodiverse. Yeah. It's good. Um, but yeah, if you do want to have a go at that, then it will save you money in the long run. And if you are feeding a lot of fresh mealworms then have a look at it again we'll put links in the show notes mealworms are great particularly during the breeding period because um especially the small birds like blue tits and great tits that are likely to come to your feeders although they'll take seeds most of the year during the breeding period they need invertebrates to feed to their chicks they need a lot of invertebrates actually it's quite a well quoted um statistic that the average blue chick, blue tit chick will eat 100 caterpillars a day and the average clutch of a blue tit is 10 eggs. So that's 10 chicks eating 100 caterpillars a day. No wonder the parents look so tired. They're just <laughs> exactly. constantly back and forth. But yeah, if that invertebrate um, population isn't there in and around your garden, then that chick will basically perish, which is quite sad. So yeah, mealworms so... can be a really important part of that diet. Yeah, and the amount of invertebrate food is 
yeah, as we will find out when I talk a bit about the science, is is really vital. So if you're looking at your neighbor's gardens and you think, you know, they, they don't look like they're going to be harboring a lot of insect life, um, you know, if they just don't have as many leafy plants as you need, then yeah, maybe feeding mealworms would be a really good idea. And the final thing before I come to fat balls and feeding in the winter is bird baths. So just don't forget to put out some water for the birds. It doesn't matter what it goes in, a dustbin lid or a plant saucer, anything like that. Um, but just remember to keep it clean. Yeah, so they need water throughout the year. Really. Yeah, and this is something that I think a lot of people forget during re- particularly cold snaps. So we've had actually quite a lot of snow in Nottingham in the last week or so. And I was out there putting out some warm water because obviously the other water sources are all completely frozen at that time. So the birds can't wash and, and condition their feathers and they can't drink, importantly. So yeah, it's really good to to have some sort of water source in your garden. Okay, so I'm going to come on to a bit of the science about bird feeding now. And I'm going to come to some interesting research that I read. I was linked onto this by uh, a website on the British Trust for Ornithology's website. And they had an intriguing um, webpage talking about whether feeding birds over the winter is actually a good idea. And spoiler alert, basically, it is a good idea still. (laughs) But it's a bit of a more complicated picture than I previously understood. So the interesting thing is lots of studies have been done on feeding birds in the countryside and feeding them supplementary food over the winter. And nearly always this is done with fat balls or some sort of suet, blocks, pellets, something like that. Now, lots of these studies, by no means all of them, and the picture is extremely complicated and contradictory, but enough of these studies for it to be something worth paying attention to show that there are worse outcomes for certainly blue tits and great tit broods that have been supplemented in the winter. And that those are the species they look at, they've looked at the most in this. this I mean, the science isn't, um, I wouldn't say it's fully complete yet. They're still doing research on this, aren't they? But blue tits and great tits is what they've looked at. Yeah, and the reason for that is just that blue tits and great tits come to new feeders really quickly. So they're just a great species for scientists to look at. And also because they take um, bird boxes very readily they're often done in tandem so the scientists will put up a load of bird boxes they'll also put up these feeders and then it means that they can follow them throughout their whole life cycle and through the whole breeding period quite a few of these studies have shown that actually if you feed supplementary food over the winter then you get worse nest performance so that's saying that the chicks are either lighter or they lay less eggs or um, the 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 eggs hatch, but the chicks don't survive to fledging. And this is a bit counterintuitive because you'd obviously think, well, more food is is good. But to put this into context, again, I just want to say that there's a massive bias in these studies because they tend to only look at a handful of species. Um, and again, it's contradictory. Some say the exact opposite um, and you know show you that the broods actually do better. But it could well be that there's something to do with the food that they're feeding that has an effect that we haven't really got a grasp on. And there are lots of different theories for this. I'm just going to run through two of them. But you can find out more details if you want to in the academic papers we'll link to. And this is a horrible term, but it's sort of the scientific term that they use. It is possible that poor quality individuals um, can be sustained over the winter which leads to increased competition for scarce resources of fledglings in the spring. Now, what this means is that naturally, in a woodland, some 
of the birds will just die over the winter. That's totally natural. It's absolutely fine. It's not a problem in terms of the population numbers. And that's why they have so many chicks. But if you sustain the birds that might have died because they were um, less well-fed over the summer, different things like that, so they were just less strong individuals, then when it comes around to spring, actually you've got many more birds after the same resources. Now, okay, in the winter, they will take fat balls and seed that you put down. But when it comes around to the spring, like Ellie said before, they need invertebrates, they need caterpillars, they need insects, depending on the species. And there's a limited number of these in a given area, or certainly a limited number that can be found by the birds. And, and so, a decreasing number as well with yeah, all the sadly, spraying. You know, That's why we're organic. Exactly. So it is possible that there is um, increased competition for these resources leading to lower um, uh, success in the nests. And again, some of this variation between studies might be because there's more insect life in some places than others, so this effect doesn't count in different places. There's a second effect that could possibly be going on as well, which is that if you feed supplementary food, then it's possible that the birds think that there's more food available at certain times earlier in the year than there actually is. So normally in the winter, there's not going to be much food around. But if you feed them a lot of food, they're going to think, oh, there's loads of food around, spring is, might be coming, um, and so I'm going to lay my eggs, and then they, um, the eggs hatch before the insects and the invertebrates are actually out. So before the caterpillars are all around. And this is part of this, what they call the study of phenology. So this is the study of how natural systems interact over the time of year. And it's really interesting. And it's normally, it's true that if birds are nesting at the right time of year, but maybe just a day or two earlier than other nests, then there is an advantage. And that's because the chicks come out just a day or two earlier than the others, and it means the parent birds can get first dibs on the caterpillars. Oh, a bit like you in our kitchen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, to be very quick to get to the food before bed. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> um, but if they are too early, and again, they might be too early because they think there's loads of food around, then it's also possible that they come out before all the caterpillars and invertebrates are around meaning they there is less food again and this can be compounded in urban birds because urban birds are already known to fledge earlier and that might be because um, of the heat island effect they think the spring is coming earlier because it's slightly warmer in the city also because of light pollution and all sorts of different things like that as well now none of these are the right answer because the science is ongoing you know we don't actually know if any of these things are right or not it's all just different hypotheses but it's just something interesting um, to know it might be that we are feeding suboptimally you know we're not giving what is actually best for birds but the only way we're going to know that is by doing more science and one thing is for sure is that if we don't feed birds particularly in urban environments then that is going to have a worse outcome yeah, I, I always look at our sparrow population. They they, they seem to have a, a little run of about five or six gardens that they go in just out the back of our house. But I don't know how many other people around here actually feed them. No. So while it's an interesting um, line of scientific work to find out what's going on with birds in the countryside and whether we can learn more and we can do things better, you know, you just need to imagine what would happen if all the people in 
your street just didn't feed the birds. You know, they, they would just have nowhere to go. But one thing that comes out of these studies is it might be the case that there's too much competition for scarce insect resources early in the year. And you can do something about that in your garden. As gardeners, yes. Well, this goes back down to uh, basically putting plants in and not spraying off the insect life. So particularly trees. Trees are wonderful because obviously they're much bigger. There's much more mass there for things like caterpillars to breed on. And you don't generally notice um, when you're stood beneath a tree just how much invertebrate life there is i think if you had the equivalent number of caterpillars on for example your favorite rose or something you'd panic but trees really can just they put up with it don't they they can really sustain a lot of invertebrate life which is where these birds are getting all this food from for their chicks yeah that's right it's amazing um hazel things like willow they just have so many leaves and more leaf is more caterpillar food and more caterpillars are more bird food but as well as that you can include mealworms as part of your fat ball. And again, these just can be bought commercially. You can buy fat balls with what they call insect flowers. And that basically just means ground up insects. And feed live mealworms and live waxworms. So you want to be feeding this selection of um, foods in addition to the seed, particularly over the winter and into the spring. Just because these insects, the mealworms and waxworms, are going to go some way towards, you know, replacing uh, some of the caterpillars that they might not be able to access just because there's no food around. Wonderful. There's one last thing that we need to talk about. And Ellie mentioned this earlier on when she was outside cleaning the bird feeders. There's some more science showing that urban birds don't do as well as birds in the countryside. That is possibly linked to using feeders because feeders are a place where... um, diseases can be transmitted between birds. Yeah, because in the wild, birds don't tend to all cluster in the same specific spot because obviously if you've got berries and nuts and things, then once the, once the bird's taken it, there's not more there for the next bird to yeah, come and get. It. So, Yeah, and you don't get a buildup of... Um, they, they sort of have a bit of saliva when they're eating, so you don't get this buildup of saliva and you don't get you know droppings and different things like that as well all accumulating in one place. And this is important because there's a disease called trichomonosis that is probably the major cause of greenfinch numbers dropping by about a third in the last 40 years. And yes, they have started to recover a bit, but this disease is a major problem. And it's also probably um, a, a key part of the cause of chaffinch numbers dropping by about a quarter in the last just 10 years. So there's trichomonosis, but you also get things like salmonella, E. coli, avian pox as well. And these are just diseases that would naturally be in populations at a low level, and that's fine. Um, But, you know, if you're getting hundreds of different birds to your feeder every day, there's a good chance that just by the fact that they're all coming to one specific pot, they're more spot, they're more likely to transmit it between them. So what can you do about this? Well, Ellie's already said you just need to sterilise your garden feeders. Um, So the way to do that is make sure you're buying a feeder that can be taken completely apart. Check that when you buy it. Once you've taken it apart, clean it with a disinfection solution, and that is a 10% bleach solution. And we use bleach just because it's something most people are going to have in the house. Then just adjust depending on you know how much liquid you need to clean the amount of feeders that you've got. Yeah, and give them a really good scrub with that. When that's done, of course, rinse them off and air dry them, like Ellie already said, so there's you know resi- no residue there. Um, and actually, I, I just need to say the same is true for bird baths. So if you're feeding bird baths up once a week, again, do it all at the same time, tip them out and give them a good clean. 
Yep. And it's really important for us to say that it's actually not that well known, but if you do find a diseased animal of any kind, actually, not just birds, in your garden... Um, well, first of all, if it's diseased but still alive, um, then obviously try and get a photograph of it. And you can send that photograph to um, Garden Wildlife Health, which is a scheme run by the Zoological Society of London. And they will, A, diagnose the problem, hopefully, but it also helps them build up a picture of the health of our garden wildlife and populations of various things. So if you find a hedgehog even... Um, just any, anything that's wild outside that it doesn't look quite right, then just take a photo and send it to them. And if you find a, a, a dead animal as well, which is obviously very sad, again, if you get in contact with the Garden Wildlife Health Team, and this is, there's a website which we'll put a link to on our various pages, um, they may well ask you to very carefully and in a plastic bag collect up that, that body and send it to them. And they'll give guidance on exactly the safest way of doing that so that you don't risk uh, any diseases being transmitted to you, etc. And that just then enables them to do biopsies and to really find out the cause of that particular death. Yeah, because they're the early warning system. The only way we can stop these things is by knowing about them in the first place. I really recommend looking on their website. And if you're ever worried about um, the health of an animal in your garden, then they've got loads of resources on there that you can look at. A final few things. One key point, if you're feeding peanuts, try and get a wire mesh feeder. And this is really important because really big seeds, if um, especially during the breeding period, it is possible for parent birds to feed their chicks bits of food that are too large and the chicks can choke. So if you use a wire feeder with a mesh Uh, which is about six millimeters, something like that, then it means the birds have to peck out bits of food at a time. And so there's no chance of the chicks choking. Buying feeders with metal um, fittings is better than plastic. I mean, they just last longer, but also um, squirrels can actually just chew away the plastic to get at food. Um, I don't think there's anything squirrels won't do. (laughs) No. In terms of sterilizing your feeders, just try and get into a good habit of doing it weekly. And only put in as much food as they're going to use before you next take them down to sterilise it. And plant trees. (laughs) Like the hazel, which we're going on to now. Yes, excellent segue. Okay, so now it's time for Native Plant of the Week. We're going to be doing this every podcast. Um, We've chosen the best native plants that we think are garden worthy. And so they're beautiful for us, but also by virtue of them being native, they're usually excellent for our wildlife as well. So this week we've chosen a tree and I think a lot of you will know it. It is the hazel or Corylus avalana to give it its Latin name. So the hazel tree actually grows across much of Europe um, and even parts of North Africa and Western Asia. So it's got a really big range, which I didn't know about. It's got down to North Africa as well. It's also, yeah, like the primrose. Yeah, a lot of our plants seem to stretch down there. In the UK, you'll most likely see it in the understory of lowland oak, ash or birch woodland. Hazel is a beautiful tree and it's really fantastic in gardens because its size is actually really easily controlled by coppicing. Now, coppicing is something that we've done with hazel trees in woodlands for centuries as well. And it just means cutting it down to what we call a stool, which is just a stump. And the tree actually regenerates from that. So in terms of how it looks, um, 
the tree itself, without pruning or coppicing, it can actually reach 12 metres, which is quite big. Yeah, and you hardly ever see that, do you? Because... You actually really don't see that very often, even in woodlands. Yeah, as I say, mostly most hazels have been coppiced in some way in the past. Um, if it has been coppiced, then the tree will also live significantly longer than its usual lifespan of about 80 years. So we're not we're not saying that you need to keep your uh, garden hazels going for hundreds of years. I guess it depends on how many generations <laughs> of your family are going to be living there. But they are just really lovely. Well, when they've been coppiced, lovely, low spreading trees. Um, and they, they've got lovely, fresh, green, round oval leaves in spring. And they're also slightly hairy if you actually touch them and pointed at the tip. Um, their bark is actually smooth and grey-brown. And when they've been coppiced, one of their qualities is that the, the actual stems will grow remarkably straight. So you'll have this mass of really dead straight up, upright stems. And then the side shoots that come from that, they sort of grow in a sort of zigzag um, to each bud. So one of the other major ornamental qualities of hazel trees are their well-known showy catkins. And this is one reason why gardeners plant them. And these actually start to appear in late winter, early spring. And I've seen lots around in the last few weeks when I've been on my walk out, walks out and about. And I mean, they, they also herald the, the beginning of, or the very early beginning of spring, really. They're a beautiful pale yellow um, and they hang from little clusters from the ends of stems before the leaves have appeared. So you can really see them. And that can actually look really wonderful when the sun shines from behind the tree. So if you're thinking of planting a hazel in your tree, then perhaps consider looking at where the light shines before you do so. So because of, well, various things, but they are an incredibly important species to wildlife in the UK, Um a bit about their leaves so like a lot of our trees native tree species a lot of moth caterpillars actually really rely on those leaves and just as a few examples because there really are hundreds of species of particularly micro moth that feed on hazel um we've got the large emerald which is a stunning emerald green moth about 50 millimeters diameter wingspan really really pretty um, there's also the small wood white, the barred umber and a nut tree tussock. And I don't know why I find the tussock such a good name to say, but it's something about it that just rolls off the tongue. Yeah. But that the nut tree tussock, if you ever see one, actually has little hairy trousers and it's a really wonderful moth. I thought, I didn't know what you were going to say then. <laughs> <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, all of those species, the, the actual caterpillar stage feeds on the leaves of hazel. And also, and this is a bit niche because you're unlikely to have a dormouse population in your garden, but in the wild, those caterpillars also form, and indeed the nuts of the hazel tree also form an important part of the diet of the dormouse. And the nuts themselves are also really important for um, for bird populations as well. So we've got, you know, woodpeckers, nut hatches wood pigeons and jays will all eat the hazelnuts and also pretty much anything any mammal with a mouth that's large enough to eat them so you quite often get foxes eating nuts um and wood mice as well as well as the the dormouse and wood mice really are a bit more uh, common you're more likely to have wood mouse in your garden so going back to the catkins which as i say form in sort of january february the pollen that is produced on those catkins is also a really important food source for bees. 
um, because it comes out when there's not much other food around. However, it's important just to say that hazel is actually wind pollinated. And that means that the pollen grains are designed to not be that sticky because it want, the plant wants the wind to be able to pick up those grains and blow them as far as possible. So they actually repel each other. And, and that means that bees can't collect lots at once. But it does make for a good quick snack rather than a sustaining meal. Yeah, and quite um, a lot of weevils eat the pollen as well. Yeah, oh, and hazel also supports loads of beetle um, species. Yeah. So, yeah, just I couldn't list all the species that no. it actually sustained too long. But yeah, so the pollen, as I say, is really important for bees. And we haven't we've covered this a little bit, but pollen for bees also provides them lots of fats, minerals and vitamins that the nectar part of the plant doesn't actually give them. So that covers what hazel provides in terms of food. But it's also really important habitat, especially when it's been coppiced, like we said. And this is a really traditional way of managing our hazel, our relic hazel woodlands. When we used to coppice a lot, it used to produce this mass of thinner stems, which is really important shelter for lots and lots of ground nesting birds, like the nightingale, particularly likes coppice woodland, nightjar, yellowhammer, and also willow warblers. Um, and yeah, we're, a lot of which are all really rare now. Really rare, and a lot of it is because we've stopped managing a lot of our woodland in this way. Um, which is really interesting that, to think that cutting down trees can actually provide um, a really big benefit. And one of the reasons why we do or did coppice more regularly was because of having bigger nut orchards. So we actually import most of our hazelnuts to this country now. But historically, probably around the Victorian times, I think, it actually peaked. We used to grow a lot more of our own and that meant that there was a need to coppice more of this woodland because you're regenerating these plants that were giving us humans a crop. And, you know, nuts are a really important source of fats and proteins and it's just generally very good. Um, The actual wood itself has also historically been used. So this is also from a human perspective. And as I said before, that the resulting long, uniformly straight new growth that you get from coppicing hazel is really good for a multitude of uses and you used to see it used in thatched roofs um, and and probably more importantly now because we've actually installed a few of these but you often see it used for fencing traditional hazel um, fencing hurdles, hurdles they call them yeah and if you're gardening vegetables probably this is a, another really common use now um, you can't beat a few long hazel poles strapped together to make a, a tall bean wigwam yeah, and it's not best. just for beans as well. Like we've, um, in one of our gardens, you know, our customer had a load of massive hazel poles. So these are bigger than you'd normally use for a bean wigwam. They're a bit older, but they are sturdy enough that we made supports for climbing roses out of them as well. And they just look really good because they're natural and they sort of blend in with the actual garden itself. So a little bit about the hazel sexual antics. <laughs> shall we say so coralus or hazel is a monoecious plant and that directly translates from latin to one uh, to mean one house so monoecious and this alludes to the fact that each individual plant actually contains both the ma- male and female sexual reproductive parts which is as we saw in the primrose last week however with the hazel 
These reproductive parts are actually contained within single-sex flowers. So you have the male flowers, which are the catkins that you see. And then you also have the female flowers, which I think most people have probably not really ever noticed because you really have to get up close to the plant to really see them. You just walk straight past them. And they're not like, you know, when we think of flowers, we think of roses and big showy things. And that's not the purpose of this particular female flower. Like they only exist to really catch the pollen that's blowing in the wind from another hazel plant. And as such, they're really tiny. They don't waste lots of energy in making them really big and showy. You can only really notice them because they have the female um, reproductive part, the style, is protruding out of this sort of scaly bud thing. So you really have to. It is it. bright pink, though. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're beautiful in their own way, aren't they? And as I said, that is because they're adapted to be wind pollinated, and in the case of hazel, they require another plant with all of its genetic material to pollinate. Um, they're not self-fertile, basically. I didn't know that. Oh, didn't you? Oh, good. It's always good to teach you something. So, how do you get uh, hazel in your garden? So planting and cultivation. So like most trees, um, the dormant season is a really good time to plant hazel. Um, If you're planting hazel for yourself to get a food crop of nuts and not just for the wildlife, then to encourage the best cropping, you really do need more than one plant. You are likely to still get some nuts if you put one hazel in. Uh, because there's just so much pollen in the air from uh, wild hazel and in other people's gardens. But you're going to guarantee a better crop if you do put two in your garden. So I think this probably is for only really medium and large size gardens, ideally. Um, And those need to be less than, ideally less than 50 metres away from each other. Um, They're also best grown in a semi-sheltered spot where they're not going to be buffeted by really strong cold winds. And that's because they do their pollination in the January, February period. So you want to avoid frost pocket pockets, ideally, because that can actually affect their pollination rate. And they do prefer full sun. But saying that, they are also pretty unfussy. But I'm just trying to give you the advice for getting the best crop of nuts, if that's what you're aiming for. Yeah, so the sun, I guess, will help ripen the wood and ripen the nuts as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they tolerate a lot of different soil types as well, but they do prefer light, sandy soil that's relatively well drained and also with a pH of 6.5 to 7.5 they do grow if you've got really rich soil but you might find that your nut crop is slightly reduced and that you end up with instead a really vigorous tree that has lots of lush green growth which will also look nice in terms of getting a nut crop as well I will just say now that we are talking about the native hazel the wild hazel um, but there are also lots and lots of cultivars and varieties out there which are they some of them do look a bit different and you can actually buy them from fruit tree specialists and you could if you really wanted to plant your own nut orchard but I will just say that it's important to check that each cultivar is going to pollinate another cultivar because they do actually have slightly different timings for when their cat can show but there are tables online to be able to give you advice on that. Uh, I will say also that wild hazel is generally able to pollinate all the cultivars, though, um, just as a general point. Oh, that's interesting, because it's the same if if you're growing apples, say, then uh, they often recommend growing a crab apple. For the same purpose. Yeah, for the same purpose, Mm because it flowers over such a long period. 
So if you've got the right um, situation aspect and you really want a hazel tree, then you could go out and buy one. And like we said last week, if you are going to do this, then do try and get UK grown stock. Um, there are actually lots of people, uh, lots of nurseries online that do sell native UK hazel trees. I've actually had a look. It's quite easy to get hold of them. Another way you can grow a hazel tree for your garden is through a simple process called layering. And all this means, it is a horticultural term, but all it means is that you take a, a pliable new stem, ideally about one year old, but sometimes you can get away with it being two years old if it's still nice and whippy. Um, and you bend this stem down to the ground from the tree. It's obviously got to be growing from quite close to the base. And you pin it to the to the ground and cover it with a little bit of soil. And from that, over the course of a year, so you tend to do that in springtime, and over the course of that year, where that branch meets the ground will actually develop roots. And once those roots are established enough, you can come along, you can cut that stem off, and you've got yourself a new tree, which is one of my favourite ways of propagating, because it's free. And we will be putting a link to an RHS page that describes that process in more detail, so you can actually get the real specifics of it. You can also grow them from seed as well, which is a bit of fun if you're out collecting seed, maybe with your kids. Um, And the seeds will be dropped in autumn, You collect them, you take them home and then you just remove the outer husk but you keep the shell intact. And the thing with hazelnuts is that they actually need a period of cold weather to be viable for germination. So that just mimics our winter which is obviously what would happen if they were in the wild. They would fall, winter would happen. It would give this um, what we call vernalization to that seed and that just it's just a posh word to describe how you make the seed cold for a period of time to do that at home you can just pop that seed into some moist compost and just leave it in your fridge maybe for a month or so just to give it that cold snap and then in late winter you can sow it into individual pots and hey presto you might have yourself some new hazel trees That's, of course, assuming the squirrels haven't eaten all the seed before you come to collect it. And another thing on the cultivars, so a really fantastic ornamental tree for any garden, really, is the uh, twisted hazel, which is the Corylus avalana contorta. And for me, so if you just imagine a hazel, but instead of those long, straight posts, this one is actually grown to have really, really tangled twisted branches it's stunning again with the light shining through it and and because you've got the catkins on the bare stems it really shows off those twisted stems yeah really really great tree for a small garden as well yeah so hopefully that's encouraged you all to go out and uh, investigate fitting a hazel into your garden all right well i think that concludes episode two of the wildlife garden podcast yeah, so we're going to head out now and do our big garden bird watch for an hour. Thank you very much for listening. It's so great that we've had so many downloads already. Please do share it with your friends if you can. Like I said, we're on Google now. We're on Apple and Amazon Music. Yeah, on Facebook, we're also facebook.com forward slash the Wildlife Garden podcast. And on Twitter, we are at the Wild GDN. Um, and if you want to know what we're doing with our personal work as well, and um, what we do day to day through our business, then... You can find our website on ellieswellies.com 
And we've got a Facebook page for that as well, which is facebook.com forward slash Ellie's Wellies Gardening. Lots of great puns on there. Thanks. Do you want to say it? No, I won't say oh, it. Oh, you've got to say it now. I will say it. Um, yeah, we we were fruit tree pruning on Friday and I was very proud of myself when I described us as having done some figonometry and applied mathematics. What's with the silence? <laughs> it was funny. I think three people laughed on Facebook. So oh, no, I'm, ta- I'm taking yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on that note, <laughs> we're going to say goodbye. Yeah. Bye. Bye.